Welcome to the Docs Who Lift podcast, where we distill and simplify the complexities of a healthy lifestyle, exercise, medicine, and weight loss. We're excited to bring you a podcast that's a prescription for clinical practice, scientific recommendations, and just real life. This this is the Docs Who Lift podcast. Hey, and welcome back to the Docs Who Lift podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, and I got co-host, Dr. Carl Nadolsky, junior super endocrinologist, and we got an awesome guest today. And of course, I always say every, every guest is awesome, but she is quite spectacular. Uh, she had a really cool study that just came out that we were really interested in. Dr. Rebecca Pearl, uh, assistant professor in the Department of Clinical and Health Psychology at the College of Public Health and Health Professions at University of Florida. So welcome, uh, Dr. Pearl. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I should also say you also run the bot. Do you run the body image and stigma lab there? Is that, yes. is that your, that's so that cool. is my lab. Yeah. Thank you. That's amazing. And, and then one thing is, <clears throat> so Dr. Spencer, uh, called it the gator clap, which we're pretty sure that's not correct for all the <laughs> university of Florida gators out there. So Spencer just embarrassed everybody or embarrassed himself mostly. So, um, Let's well, you just embarrassed me because nobody needed to know. That. <laughs> yeah, well, you know that's uh, that's that's how that works. So, um, anyways, let's have you. Let's have uh, Dr. Pearl do the Gator Chomp. One oh, time. yeah, we want to see the Gator oh, Chomp in case He's anybody's the watching spot. the YouTube. <laughs> well, and I I should know which arm is supposed to be on top, but it is a, yeah, a it's full a, Gator Chomp. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I, according according to the um, Gator that I see online when I look this up, the uh, the mascot. He, he does have his right arm up, so that looks okay. correct. All okay. right, so we're good for all the gators out there. <laughs> I like a gator clap, but whatever. Okay, the reason the reason we had you on this, we, we contacted you right away when the study got published. It was a really, like, we're going to go into your background and stuff, but the reason we we contacted you in the first place is because we talk, we've talked about uh, stigma and bias on this podcast. Um, my brother, uh, Dr. Carl, just... Um, you were the first author on the, the mm-hmm. ACE uh, stigma guidelines. Yeah. So, right? I mean, this is this is hugely important. And obviously, I'm a clinical endocrinologist and obesity specialist. So, you know, I'm seeing patients um, with obesity complicated by severe complications of obesity. And that's how, you know, we stage the severity of disease. And I'm not a psychologist. But I was uh, asked... You sure as hell aren't. <laughs> I was asked to to drive that because of... You're more of the expertise in diagnosis and staging the severity of disease and um, and the the better awareness or at least trying to increase the awareness of this uh, weight bias and stigma. And so we got a you know this huge consensus panel of different people uh, that went there. boy, now in, in hindsight, I, I wish we somehow would have had you at the consensus panel a year ago that led to a lot of discussion, a lot of representatives from different uh, professional organizations, ranging from the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association to all the different obesity organizations, et cetera. <clears throat> and we did have some psychologists there, including um, uh, Spencer Jason Helford, who's uh, who is the president of the European Association for the Study of Obesity. He's a psychologist. Anyways, the, the bottom line of it was we have to keep finding ways to clinically uh, diagnose and include internalized weight bias and stigma 
in our evaluation and treatment of, of patients with obesity, while also, you know, obviously acknowledging the, the external biases, um, you know, from, from clinicians and the public, et cetera. And one of our main real conclusions of this is that, especially for patients, their, their internalized weight bias really drives poor outcomes, just in general. It's like this huge, vicious, vicious cycle. It causes problems with, uh, you know, the, our healthcare. Well, why, hey, why don't you stuff. let Dr. Pearl well, say? She's I know, the expert, but I'm, you t- I'm telling her why we want her on here. Because, yeah, I know, but because the point is, we what know. do we do about so, it? What do we do about yeah. it? Shut up. I want, I want Dr. Pearl right. to say because she's. They should have had her on the paper, not you. Yeah. That's, <laughs> well, that's that's not wrong. <laughs> no, no. And and it's so fantastic to hear that, you know, all these organizations are starting to recognize weight bias and stigma as a really pivotal piece of the puzzle in, in addressing weight and obesity. Um, and you don't have to be a psychologist to recognize it, right? We, if you just live in this world, you've been exposed mm-hmm. to these negative messages. Um, so it's it's so salient and, and prevalent um, that you don't have to, you know, study it to be aware of it and to know that it's harmful. Um, and I, you know, I do want to uh, just make a point of saying that when we think about internalized weight stigma, um, we want to be careful not to pathologize it. Um, so I think, like, I wouldn't necessarily necessarily say we want to diagnose it, but more just kind of have awareness Mm. of it and screen Mm -hmm. for it. Because stigma is so pervasive in our society, it's only natural for some people to internalize it to this strong Mm. degree. Um, So we want to be careful of not kind of framing it as something wrong with patients uh, who have these high levels of internalized stigma, but more you know, an expected outcome of living in in our society and the messages we receive, and for people who have internalized it to to a higher degree, such that it is really negatively impacting their psychological and physical well being, we want to be able to screen for that so we can provide additional support. Yeah, so yeah. that's that's a great point. And um, could you give a good a description from your perspective on? You know, the definition, I guess, or or at least what people, so people can understand what the heck it is we're even talking about. Yeah, what, yeah, what is internalized? Yeah, yes, great question. And there are some different definitions, but um, in, in research, we typically define this as the process when someone is first aware of kind of the negative bias and stigma against their group, in this case, folks with a higher weight. Um, and start to buy in to the negative stereotypes and messages that they're exposed to. So with weight, some of the most common stereotypes are that people are lazy, that they lack willpower, um, that they're less intelligent or, you know, just less worthy as, as people. Um, so when people with a high weight start to believe that those stereotypes are true and apply them to themselves, mm-hmm that's where we see this kind of internalization or also sometimes called self-stigma. So people are applying those negative beliefs and attitudes toward themselves and as a result, having lower self-worth or self-esteem because of their weight. Yeah. And then, so then what happened? Like, does it, and you said not to pathologize it, but like what, what occurs then? Do, do they? Is it a self-fulfilling prophecy or, or what else happens? Yep. So there's a lot of research on some of the psychological and behavioral and physical health consequences of internalizing weight stigma. Um, so we know people with higher levels of internalized stigma have lower self-esteem, more symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, so that's where that internalization, which again is kind of 
you know, not unexpected in the society we live in, but for some people, uh, there's a higher level of internalization that then can then maybe translate into clinical symptoms of depression and anxiety. Um, we also know it's associated with poor body image and disordered eating behaviors, um, which again, makes sense at face value, right? If someone hates their body and hates themselves, they're going to be more susceptible to engaging in extreme behaviors to try to control their weight that we know are, are really harmful and damaging. Um, and there's also research that uh, by my group and others showing that when people have higher levels of internalized stigma, they also have less self-efficacy or less mm -hmm. confidence to engage in health-promoting behaviors like physical activity and healthy eating. Um, and that's where some of the um, work that I and others have done, including this recent study, is also looking at its impact on weight management. Um, there's a remains kind of a common misperception in our society and even among some healthcare providers that stigma might motivate people to mm. lose weight or to engage in health promoting behaviors. But time and time again, we find the opposite that when people have these negative attitudes and beliefs about themselves because of their weight, it actually undermines their ability uh, and their confidence uh, to engage in health promoting behaviors. Yeah, that, that was a significant point that we found in our, you know, literature review and, and putting that paper together is that it, it, that's kind of that vicious cycle I mentioned. It was, it was driving the exact opposite of what we want to help people do, ultimately with the end goal of improving their health, you know, literally their, their physical, but also their mental health. And that's really our goal for everybody. Absolutely. Um, and another, you know, point too, that is especially relevant in, in medical care um, are the, the stressors that are related to stigma. So experiencing stigma from other people is stressful, right? You can imagine having an exchange where someone is criticizing you because of your weight or just walking into a room and worrying about how other people are thinking about you or how other people will treat you because of your weight. That's stressful. Um, and there's some emerging research that the internalization of stigma may have similar uh, kinds of effects related to stress. So someone who's just constantly derogating themselves or criticizing themselves because of their weight, um, that there may be a chronic stress response that happens in the body too, in response to those kind of negative feelings and negative thoughts that people are, are constantly um, being bombarded with and and applying to themselves. So this is kind of a newer area of research with internalized stigma, but we've known for a while that experiencing stigma more generally is a form of stress that also undermines health and and can contribute to increased risk for chronic diseases. Yeah, it's not, so it's not just psychological. It could turn to physiological is, is or pathological, pathophysiological, I should say. Uh, what you're describing, what and and there are studies that show that those who have the most internalization, do they tend to do worse when it comes to outcomes when doing uh, weight loss attempts or like uh, comprehensive weight loss programs? Is that is that true? Yeah. So there's a little bit of research on this. Um, I would put a plug in for for researchers and clinicians who uh, deliver these kinds of treatments to start measuring stigma in in their research or in their clinical practice, because we don't have a lot of information about how stigma changes with treatment or how stigma may predict these treatment outcomes. But some mm. of the work um, that my team and others have done have suggested some evidence that there's less long-term weight loss and maintenance among folks who have 
higher levels of internalized stigma. Um, but I will say there's only a few studies on this, and some of the findings are mixed. Um, so some studies show that maybe that's true for some demographic groups, but not all demographic groups. So there's definitely room for a lot more research on this. Very cool. But like you said before, the the, the self-management, some of the behaviors are pretty definitively reduced. You know, the nutrition efforts, the exercise, physical activity, and even if I'm not mistaken, the the medication adherence, like just the whole package. And that so, you know, you can obviously sort of see where that would ultimately lead. Yeah. Yes, for sure. So, okay. So that leads us to your study. Because, yeah, the question is, all right, so now what do we do about it? Yes. Uh, and that that is a big question of what do we do about stigma? Um, and I'll, I'll also say that, you know, the study that that we recently conducted is focused on trying to reduce internalized stigma at kind of the individual level through group counseling. Um, this is just one level at which we need to be intervening with stigma. And ideally, we would be preventing people from internalizing this to begin with. Um, so we need kind of big structural changes, things like policies that protect against weight discrimination, um, changing how people think in the public about weight, how we talk about weight, um, and preventing those kind of interpersonal experiences of discrimination or mistreatment due to weight. So there are other folks working at those levels. And I, I do just want to emphasize that, um, you know, the intervention that I'll talk about is just kind of one small piece of the bigger puzzle in, if we're going to eradicate stigma. Um, but the study that, that my team recently conducted was testing a psychological intervention to try to reduce internalized stigma in a group format among people with obesity who had high levels of internalized stigma and who had all reported experiencing some form of weight discrimination or teasing or unfair treatment. Um, and we tested this intervention in the context of behavioral weight management. Um, and we did that for a few reasons. Um, one is that uh, folks who seek weight loss treatment may have more distress about their weight, which may also mean that they are tending to be people with higher levels of internalization. So this really might be our target population who may most benefit from a, a stigma intervention, um, but also to move toward thinking about stigma as part of standard care uh, of something that needs to be screened and addressed for people who, who do uh, report distress and, and need additional support. Um, so we had done some pilot work of testing this intervention as a standalone intervention, and then um, did a short-term randomized control trial of either combining it with behavioral weight loss treatment or just having standard behavioral weight loss treatment alone. And then this recent study was looking at the long-term effects of combining this stigma intervention with behavioral weight management compared to standard weight management care on its own. Very cool. Okay. So, what how did you how did you like how did you intervene? Well, like cuz this is pretty novel, right? Yeah. And 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 you you used um I think maybe one or both of the commonly uh used screening tools, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yes. And and those are we, you know, we recommend those in the paper. Um but yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on those first on how to, you know, talk to people about this, screen it, or even for people out there thinking, well, geez, am I struggling with this? And then, mm -hmm. yeah, and then we got to figure out what the heck you're doing to intervene and, and make some, some progress. Yeah. So, so the measures that we included in the study and that are kind of the main measures out there right now are the weight bias internalization scale 
Um, there's a the original version. There's also a modified version that's weight neutral for folks who might be working with people with different body sizes, because mm-hmm. um, we know people of all sizes can internalize weight stigma, even though stigma does most affect people with higher weight. Um, and then also the weight self-stigma questionnaire. So these are the two most widely used and validated measures of internalized weight stigma. Um, there you know, has been some work recently to kind of look more closely at these measures. And uh, I think there's probably room for improvement as with anything. Um, and in particular, paying attention to how these measures hold up in diverse samples, uh, because a lot of these measures Um, were initially developed primarily with white female demographics. um, And so making sure we can, you know, make sure that we're testing these across diverse groups to make sure that we're really capturing what internalized stigma is across groups where it might differ in how people talk about or think about this internalization. Um, But as of now, these are really kind of the the leading measures that are are typically used. Um, And then as far as the intervention So I'm a clinical psychologist, um, and so I really drew from evidence-based strategies in cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance-based therapies, um, including dialectical behavior therapy, or DBT, and acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, um, and taking some of those already evidence-based strategies, but tailoring them specifically uh, to change how people think and feel about their weight. Uh, and so I can talk more specifically about some of the, you know, examples of, of strategies. Yeah, I'd love to use. know because I, I don't, I have no idea. Yeah. So, um, so we, you know, would start the program with things of like just education about weight and weight bias um, to get everyone on the same page, including, you know, what are the causes of obesity and try to dispel some of the myths uh, about weight and weight loss. Um, So some of it was education just to learn more and and get past some of these myths and stereotypes. And then we engaged um, with the group in challenging some of the specific stereotypes that people might apply to themselves about their weight. Um, So a common thing that I hear from patients is that they feel like a failure because they haven't been able to control their weight or they haven't been able to lose weight. So breaking that down as a group and thinking like, okay, well, what's the evidence that you're a failure? <laughs> like, what evidence do you have to support that? And what's all the evidence that uh, pushes back against that, that you're not actually a failure? Um, and that might include, you know, all the reasons we know that weight is so challenging to uh, to prevent weight gain to begin mm-hmm. with, but also to lose um, and all the other aspects of that person that make them not a failure, right? Their their job, their relationships, mm-hmm. you know, their characteristics beyond just weight alone. Um, and we do utilize the group format in particular because with stigma, uh, we know that it's very uh, common for people to feel isolated or alone. Uh, and by bringing people together who have those shared experiences, that can be really powerful. Uh, and also there are things that are just going to be more meaningful coming from other group members who are going through the same thing than an interventionist who might not have that shared experience. So the, the peer support being embedded in the program, uh, we found to be really critical and, and comments from participants in the studies really emphasized that the peer support was a big part of it. Um, and then, you know, in addition to kind of engaging with stereotypes, we would move more into the exact kinds of thoughts that patients had about themselves related to their weight, how that might connect to their health behaviors, uh, as well as other behaviors in their life, like isolating themselves socially, 
uh, and how that affects their emotions as well. And with the idea of trying to change some of their negative thoughts that might be biased toward the negative, right? Like thinking they're a failure, blaming themselves. Um, and if we change those to be more accurate uh, and more, you know, actually in line with reality um, and not so heavily skewed toward the negative, that that could change how they feel and could also affect their health behaviors. Um, we did also include content that was about how to respond to other people. Uh, when people mm. have an experience of weight stigma, because that's often not talked about of, okay, if someone makes a comment to you about your weight, what do you say? What do you do? So we talked yeah. about different strategies of, you know, how to um, both cope with that experience and what they might do or say in response, um, how to ask a loved one to stop making comments about their weight. So those kinds of mm. strategies were embedded as well. Can you give a, a like a little example? I know that it takes a lot longer than what we have, but just a little example for people out there, because my God, this is so pervasive. I mean, I'm sure Spencer and I both every day we have these patients say the same exact stuff you're saying, and we try our best on an individual basis. But um, yeah, these these self coping strategies. Because yeah, I, I, Spencer, do you often hear that it's their family members often that oh, are family's the oh worst. my God. And it's just heartbreaking. So <clears throat> if you have a couple tips or pearls for people from Dr. Pearl. Yeah. Well, you know, with family is so tough, right? And and also in this intervention, you know, we make very clear there's no right or wrong way to respond. And everything's going to depend on the relationship with the person, what that relationship is like. Um, so we talk about like different goals that someone might have in a conversation with a family member, for example. So maybe a goal is to get them to stop doing that behavior, to stop making comments about their weight. Um, maybe a goal is to build a, a more positive relationship with that person or to maintain the relationship with that person. Or a goal might be simply to be able to walk away with, with greater self-respect and depending on which of those goals is the primary goal, people might adjust how they talk about um, mm -hmm. this issue. Ideally, you could walk away with all three, but that might not mm -hmm. always be the case. Um, but we actually in the groups would, as you know, in pairs and on one's own, think about actually writing a script uh, of how mm -hmm. you would approach a conversation and, that might include things like first just laying out the facts, right? Like, Every time I come over for dinner, you make some kind of negative remark about my weight yeah. and kind of getting on the same page about what's happening and what it is that's bothering um, the patient, talking about how that affects them, you know, that that makes me feel ashamed or that makes me feel sad, makes yeah. me want to not come over for dinner anymore. Um, and then having a very clear ask uh, to ask the person to do something different um, and then trying to reinforce that as well of, you know, if if you stop making these comments about my weight, I think it'll help our relationship. I'll want to see you more often. Um, and this largely draws from a, a framework from dialectical behavior therapy on interpersonal effectiveness skills. Um, so again, it's really using what we already know to be effective, but tailoring it specifically to these kinds of challenging conversations about weight. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Okay. So going, you like going to the the methods of your your study, you had how many people in there? 105, is that right? Yep. So this trial had 105 um, who were randomly assigned to one of two groups. So we had just over 50 participants who either received the stigma intervention with standard behavioral weight loss or received the weight loss treatment on its own. 
Um, and it was a long-term study. So everybody uh, was offered 20 weeks of weekly group sessions, regardless of which, which intervention they were in. Um, and then we had a year-long follow-up. So they got monthly sessions for the first six months of that year, and then every other month sessions for the second half of that year. Um, and in part, this is in line with you know, guidelines for maintenance treatment. Um, the last six months, we really spaced out because we wanted to do our best to see what are the long-term effects after the most active uh, you know, part of the treatment. Um, so in total, people were in treatment for 72 weeks or about a year and a half or so. Um, but really that last year was trying to see how did that initial intensive intervention sustain you know, effects over time. Do you mind me asking, when they did the power calculations, how, what amount of weight loss difference was it powered to detect? Yes. So when we powered this, we uh, were maybe a little bit ambitious in expecting a 4% okay. weight loss difference between the two groups. Um, we did not end up finding that. In the end, at, at that final week 72 uh, endpoint, we found uh, about a 2% weight loss difference between the two groups. So the participants who did receive the stigma intervention lost an average of 7.2% weight loss at week 72 compared to 5.2% weight loss in the comparison group. So that was not statistically significant. Um, and uh, I, you know, I will say 5 to 7% is clinically meaningful. Um, so both groups achieved you know, clinically meaningful weight losses that we know are associated with improvements in uh, you know, cardiovascular and metabolic health outcomes. But the sample was probably a little a little small to to get that big of effect. My statistician friends would be very like they like I'm glad you said statistically not because like my statistician yeah. friends would be like, hey, I would don't say there's not a difference because there those confidence intervals, like, I don't know whatever it, it it looks it looks like if you had it more like if you had 200 people. 150 people, I don't yeah. know what it'd be. They'd be like, mm, okay, there's a difference here. Well, and I, I mean, it's certainly nice to see, I think, for us, you know, because clinically, like you just mentioned, that that little bit could could be very, um, very meaningful for, for patients. And then in addition to the more obvious benefits that they that they really achieved. Okay, right. Because your your primary outcome was difference in in weight. Okay. And mm -hmm. then there were some secondary outcomes, it looks like physical activity. We're what what about the actual differences in how much internalization like uh, that that actual in yeah so on one of the measures of internalized stigma we did see some differences on the weight self stigma questionnaire at certain time points there were some small differences between the two groups we did not see significant differences on the weight bias internalization mm. scale um that might be in part because we screened people primarily on the weight bias internalization scale and only included people above uh, a, a certain cutoff on that mm. scale. And so because we had that restricted range on that scale initially, that might have affected how things kind of shook out later on. Um, but, you know, one thing that was surprising in this study, and this also happened in our prior trial that was a shorter term study, is we saw bigger reductions in internalized stigma in the comparison group than we had predicted. Um, so we had also kind of expected to have not as, as big of a drop if in internalized stigma among the patients who didn't actually receive a stigma intervention. Um, and I have a few thoughts on why, why we might have seen that. Yeah. Um, you know, for one, uh, 
this was, um, you know, this wasn't actual standard care. This was done in a research context and the interventionists all led both the comparison groups and the stigma intervention groups. And we did that because we didn't want there to be interventionist effects. So we didn't want to, you know, inadvertently have a more effective interventionist or a more experienced interventionist in one group versus the other. But everyone involved in this study was highly trained in, you know, stigma, talking about weight stigma. Um, And, you know, of course, we did our best to make sure that even folks who weren't getting the stigma intervention were still getting compassionate, respectful care. Um, We celebrated, you know, successes in terms of behavioral changes. We tried not to focus the session so heavily on weight, even though, of course, we were measuring that for the study. Um, so there were different elements of, of you know, the environment that were supportive and, and respectful that may have kind of played a role. I think also the peer support was a really powerful piece, uh, even when people weren't getting the kind of cognitive behavioral mm-hmm. techniques, just having that group support probably helped to reduce people's internalization. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that's great. That's, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I figured that had to be the issue there. I mean, do you, do you think that... Um, you know, we and and as many people as we can get should try to, you know, incorporate, say, psychologists and group sessions, you know, under this model? Do you think it's it's there yet? I mean, as as you probably saw, one of our recommendations from that paper was to screen for and refer to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> basically, for this type of therapy. But I guess how how in the real world do you suggest people like us might be able to accomplish that? Either you know, so some clinicians aren't going to have the resources to refer out. So they're going to have to try to yeah. do this stuff on their own. I hope to have, you know, a, you know, develop a psychology uh, aspect to this. And I think Spencer does. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, to, I, the way that I would do it is I would screen and then we would have specific lessons done, given electronically and support groups. Um, but I think a trial needs to be done within our program and we're probably going to work on this. And we're probably going to consult with you, Dr. Pearl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, kind of some, some practical points for clinicians out there. Like, yeah, what should I do in, in my, sure. my department? What, what, what could I do to make it? Yeah. And I'll say, you know, as a scientist, I, I would say this is probably still preliminary mm-hmm. and, and I would love to do a bigger test of this, have a bigger mm-hmm. sample to increase confidence. Um, and again, because this is drawing from already evidence-based strategies, I do think there are some practical things that mm-hmm. clinicians can do now. Um, and even in terms of screening, uh, you know, instead of administering a, a long measure, you could also just ask patients, how does weight affect how you think and feel about yourself? Um, and I've, we've done some recent work actually testing that exact item and showing it correlates with yeah. uh, these scales mm. that might be a little more intuitive. Yeah. You know, it's interesting you say that because <laughs> despite this, uh, you know, these recommendations we put out and knowing about, you know, learning about these screening tools, I have basically in reality been able to just kind of get it out of people when we do a weight history and we talk about it, they basically end up telling me and we have yeah. these conversations and I, and I just kind of acknowledge it and, and, you know, and, and try to understand it. And, and so, yeah, I, f- I feel like you don't necessarily need to get that specific because if, if you ask them in the right way, they'll, they'll tell you. Right. Right. Yep. And That's I think, awesome. you know, for people who don't volunteer it, having kind of a question about that mm-hmm. as part of your standard interview is useful to, you know, create a space for talking about how this affects people. And, mm-hmm. and, and I will also say not everybody 
will have internalization to this degree, right? So there are many patients that it doesn't really affect how they view themselves. They just want to be able to run around with their grandkids Mm -hmm. and, you know, that it's more the physical effects that bother them. So, you know, we don't need to force this upon everybody when it might not be relevant. But just a simple question of opening up a conversation about how does this affect how you think and feel yourself, uh, feel about yourself, um, validating their experiences or encounters with stigma, you know, being a, a listening ear, a, a supportive ear, um, that validation in and of itself might be more than most patients have ever gotten or, or ever gotten in a healthcare setting. Um, I can say when screening participants for this study and asking them uh, these kinds of questions, a lot of people said they've never really talked about this with anybody, mm-hmm. that this is the first time anybody had asked them these kinds of questions. So I think that intervention in itself of just opening up a conversation and being really validating and supporting and supportive can be powerful. Um, and, you know, even psychologists who you know might not have a manualized intervention for internalized stigma, Um, If they're educated about weight, uh, and I think that's also part of it is just educating more people about these kind of misconceptions about weight. Um, You can, you know, as a psychologist with any kind of background in these interventions, it's not that challenging to to tailor it to weight. Um, So I think there are some, you know, practical things that people can be doing now, even, you know, until the, the kind of clinical trials catch up. Yeah, I, I love it. Thank you. I, seriously, thank you so much for coming on and describing this. Um, it's a, it's it's new for clinicians to even understand what this is. Uh, this internalized biases and stigma, and uh, in, in like it's good that you're were able to at least present your data and learn from you specifically yeah. from one of the experts out there. Um, any other project you're working on right now? I would love to. I mean, I'll probably message you and because I, I I think this needs to be studied. Uh, even within like a like a pharmacological way, like how does the medicine yeah. maybe change this? I have no idea. I have no idea. But yeah. um, and I think yeah, what we don't really know if um, is if treating obesity specifically reduces you know internalized weight bias and stigma. And because a lot of times when we talk about staging the severity of disease, we talk about well, what what things are going to get better with you know, quote unquote, weight loss as a surrogate, you know, cause we don't care about weight necessarily. We care about what aspects of their health can we, right. um, our complications and can we improve upon? And so there was a little bit of debate about that when we put this together, like, well, we don't know if we can reduce that just by treating the obesity per se, but that's why I think what you're doing is just so, Very I think cool. it's just so critically important for people's mental health and, um, just overall well-being. Yeah. And that is a really good question of how does, you know, how do obesity treatments, especially as they advance, affect stigma? Um, As I mentioned, we weren't expecting internalized stigma to reduce so much in our studies because some of the prior work had shown that it really doesn't move much uh, when people go through treatment. And I think there are also ethical considerations to keep in mind about what it actually means to recommend weight loss to someone who's struggling with body image or mm-hmm. with internalized weight stigma, that we don't want to give a message that says, well, the solution is to change your body in order to change right. how you're treated right. or how you feel about yourself. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I do think there's a place for this, for stigma reduction to go hand in hand with providing comprehensive evidence-based treatment. Yeah. Wow. Thank you Amazing. so much. Yeah. Um, Anybody listening to this who has a family member or friend that could benefit, please share it with them. Make sure you give us a review on 
whatever you're listening to, to uh, Spotify, I don't know, Google, Apple, whatever. Apple. <laughs> um, the big one, Apple. And thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Pearl. It's been great. And we'll probably have you on in the future again. Yeah. Yeah. My pleasure. Thank you for bringing attention to this important topic. You got it. Here's our outro, everyone. This podcast is for entertainment and education and information purposes only. Remember, the physicians on this podcast are not your physician. It should not be considered professional or personalized medical advice. It should not be used to replace speaking with your physician or medical professional to discuss your specific health concerns. The topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose or treat any condition. As a result, we are not responsible for any unwanted medical outcomes. The views and opinions discussed are of those of the host only and do not represent those of any other entities. Thank you